0: Again, that was some good singing. You know, one of the things I love about our praise team is that they're singing to the Lord. They're not singing to an audience, and uh, they just do a wonderful job of week in and week out of walking us into the presence of God. So I do appreciate that, don't y'all? I want to share with you, get started here with a quote from Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers wrote my utmost for his highest. He was a, a devotional writer and a great leader of the church. Um, in the 1900's and so Oswald Chambers wrote this statement he said the most important event in human history besides the resurrection or the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the conversion to Christianity of the Apostle Paul now that's a pretty big statement some might say it's a little bit of an overstatement but it's not by much uh, when you think about it, the Apostle Paul comes to faith in Christ, and when he does, he dominates much of the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels. The Apostle Paul is responsible for writing 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament, nearly 48% of the New Testament. He establishes churches all over the Roman Empire. He, sets, he, he goes into Europe and set, um, establishes churches in Europe for the first time. He redefines Christianity from being a small sect within Judaism to becoming a global force in the world that will change the direction of uh, west of the civilized world over the next 2,000 years. And so today, we want to take a look back at Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. And this is the story of where Paul shall, shares the account of his encounter with Jesus. Now, today is going to mark the conclusion. I know I said last week you got two more weeks, but I have my dates mixed up. And so today marks the conclusion of our series, our summer series called Encountering Jesus. Next week, we're going to jump into a series called God Is. We're going to take a look at the attributes about of God and who who God is, who he declares himself to be in the scriptures. But today we're finishing up our uh, story, our series called Encountering Jesus. And today we'll look at the account of Paul's encounter with the Lord Jesus at his conversion on the road to Damascus. So if you have your Bibles, let's flip over there to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, we'll be reading verses 14 through 18. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet for God's word. Let's stand. And again, remember the reason why we stand. We stand week in and week out because y'all have heard all sorts of stuff. All this past week, you are watching the news, you were listening to the radio, you were reading on Facebook people's different opinions. But what difference does any of those opinions matter when compared to what God's opinion is? It doesn't. This is the opinion that matters. We don't have to wonder what God's opinion is. He did what? He wrote it down. That's right. Y'all have heard that a few times before. All right, so let's read together um, from God's Word. Acts chapter 26, beginning at verse 14. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so I want to do a little bit of background and build up to this uh, statement that Paul makes here and we'll understand why he's making the statement here. Uh, so let's flip over in our Bibles to Acts chapter 25. It's the summer of 59 A.D., and the Apostle Paul has been in jail for the last two years, and he uh, has an opportunity to come before the governor of Caesarea, or the governor of Judea, who lives in the town of Caesarea. Now, we have a map here for you. You can see Caesarea. It's a town in the little purple zone called Samaria, and it's right on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. And this was kind of the capital, or where the governor of this region lived. It was named Caesarea after Caesar built by Herod way back in the 40s AD and uh, so this is where the governor lives and there's a new governor in town and his name is Festus and so he's a new governor and he has these cases that are waiting on him during that time of transition and so he brings Paul who's been in jail now for two years up for his trial and as the trial begins to roll out Paul realizes that this is not going to go well for him. Uh, Festus really doesn't care about Paul doesn't really want to hear his story and Paul realizes that Festus is about ready to say hey just send him on outside let's take off his head and be done with this guy and so Paul says hey look I am as a Roman citizen have the right to make an appeal to Caesar that is to have my case brought before Caesar himself and that was Paul's right as a Roman citizen and so in response to that Festus says Acts chapter 25 and verse 12 he says you have appealed to Caesar and so to Caesar you will go Now we jump forward with me one verse, Acts chapter 25 verse 13, and this is where King Agrippa comes into this story. King Agrippa, King King Agrippa was the uh, he, he ruled over a portion of the territory of Israel under the Roman authorities, and so here's a little bit of that encounter. Acts chapter 25 verse 13. It says, "A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus, who was the new governor." Verse 14. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Now, King Agrippa that we read about here is the King Agrippa, this is Herod Agrippa II. He was, his father was uh, King Herod in Acts chapter 12, and his grandfather, the guy that we're reading about right here, his grandfather was the guy who uh, was Herod at the time of Christ's birth. He was the Herod with the wise men and all that sort of story that we read about when Jesus was born. Um, and so... <clears throat> And uh, lost my spot, sorry. Um, and so verse 22, Then King Agrippa says to Festus, I would like to hear this man Paul for myself. And Festus replied, Tomorrow you will. Now see, the interesting thing about King Agrippa II is he was known to be an expert in Jewish law and in Jewish custom. And so that's part of the reason why this new governor, Festus, who's new to this territory, doesn't know anything about Jews, wants King Agrippa II to come and give his opinion and assess the situation with this guy named Paul. Verse 23, The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room, or the auditorium, with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. Now, you can imagine, they've got all the officers, the high officials, all there. They're in their regalia. They've got their official uniform and dress on. They've got the attendants all there in this grand hall room where the governor sits on his uh, throne of, of judgment. And all the people gathered around. And all this was intent to display the power of Rome. It was intent to display the prestige of Rome. It was intent to uh, intimidate those who would come into this assembly. And then it says, middle of verse 23, Then at the command of Festus, Paul, after all these people were assembled, Paul was brought in. Now over the next several verses, Paul is invited to give a defense of himself to talk about why he's been out there talking about this person named Jesus and why this has been such a troubling thing for the Jewish people. Um, Skip on down to Acts chapter 26 and verse 4. It says, The Jews all know the way that we have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. Verse 5. He says, the Jews have known me for a long time, and they can testify to all this, if they're willing to, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So he's saying here, you know, these Jewish people, they've known me since I was a child. He says in Galatians chapter 1 that I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of the Jews my own age. Paul was a standout amongst all the other Jewish scholars. He was advancing in Judaism. The people knew this. They'd, they'd known about Paul's exploits, trying to punish the Christians, trying to wipe out the Christians and all this sort of stuff. And so he's saying if the, any of the Jews want to speak up, they, could, they, they can testify the fact that I was all in as a Jew. I was raised in it. I lived it. I loved it. I was fully devoted myself to it. And so when all this talk about Jesus as the Messiah comes along, Paul says, you know, hey, look, I felt like as a devoted Jew that I needed to try and squash this movement. And so look at verse 10. That's what he says. He says, and this is just what I did, tried to squash this movement. On the authority of the chief priest, in other words, he was at one time had the ear of the chief priest. At one time, he was a part of the political inner circle amongst the Jewish people. He talked with the chief priest. On the authority of the chief priest, he said, I put many of the saints, the Christians, in prison. And when they were put to death, I always cast my vote against them. I was not for this thing called Christianity, he's saying here. Acts chapter 7 tells us that. It's the story of when Stephen was stoned to death. Stephen was the first Christian martyr, at least as recorded in in the scriptures. And Stephen was, uh, was one day, he had been preaching, and, and a crowd of Jews gra- grabbed him, and Paul stand there holding their coats and sanctioning the stoning of Stephen, the death of stoning. He's, he's, he's all for the stoning of Stephen. He's approving it wholeheartedly. Verse 11. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme, that is, to deny Jesus In my obsession against them, I went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul is saying I was an animal. I was an unstoppable force. I just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming against these people called the Christians. Verse 12. While I was on my way to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, they knew where I was going. They knew I was going up there to grab some more Christians, bring them down to Jerusalem, make sure that they were punished. While I was on my way, verse 13, about noon, O King Agrippa, As I was on the road, this is what we read, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Verse 15. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord Jesus replied to him, he said, I am the one whom you are persecuting. Now you say, hey, Gordon, hold on just a second. Paul was not persecuting Jesus. Jesus had died, resurrected, gone on up to heaven. All that had taken place before. So, I mean, what's Paul mean here? Well, this is a you're right. Paul was not directly persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the followers of Jesus. But here's a really cool thing that the Scripture reminds us of. It reminds us that when people mess with you, they are messing with the Lord Jesus. That's what the Scriptures say. That when people go after his children... God says, mm-mm, mm-mm, that's one of mine. And so if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your friends, you've never entered into a real and personal relationship with him, think about what you're missing out on. You're missing out on the God of the universe, the omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe who has your back. Friends, that's the, one of the offers that we get from the Lord Jesus when we enter into a relationship with him. That's one of the benefits of that relationship. Well, let's go on. So Paul's there lying on the ground on this road to Damascus, this bright light from heaven. The Lord Jesus speaks to him, reveals himself to him, and says, hey, Paul, uh, you've been on the wrong team all this time. You thought you were working for the Lord, but you weren't. Uh, You've been working against him. And so Paul switches teams there. Paul's lying there on the ground, and he realizes that Stephen, whom he had stood there and watched stoned to death, was telling him the truth. He realizes that all those people that he had put in prison by the hundreds and the thousands, that all of them were telling him the truth. He realizes that all these people he had beaten and brutalized and even killed, that the whole time they were telling him the truth, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he really was alive. That is that the God of the universe in human form, Jesus Christ, is the great Messiah of Israel. Paul is lying there on the ground in that instant, and he switches teams. He joins ranks from being a Jew to being one who is a follower of Christ. Paul makes Jesus his Savior. But God doesn't just stop there. As we continue to read, in fact, God tells Paul what the mission of the rest of his life is going to be. Look at verse 16 with me. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this reason to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. Verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people, the Jews and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. Why am I doing that? Verse 18, well, I want for you, Paul, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's your mission, Paul. I want for you to spend the rest of your life doing that. Look at verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, he says, your majesty, I was not disobedient to the vision that I received from heaven. In other words, you want to know why I've been out preaching about Jesus? It's because Jesus, God himself in the flesh, told me to do this i was commissioned by him i was told by him to do this i'm just being obedient to what god told me to do okay well that's our account of paul's encounter with jesus on the road to damascus and it marked that moment in his life when he gave his life to jesus when he was born again you know paul says in 1 corinthians chapter 15 that he was the last person on earth to have an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 7, he says, then Jesus, he goes through a whole list here of people that Jesus appeared to after resurrection. He says, then Jesus appeared to James, then to the apostles, verse 8, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Pretty interesting. Well, I thought so. Anyhow, little history lesson there for you. Well, that's our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask that question. Question we ask every week around here, every week around here, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, hey Gordon, that's really neat history lesson about the Apostle Paul. I appreciate that, but I mean, you know, we started back school this week. How's this help me get the kids off to school and solve all the problems of the world? I mean, what difference does this make to where I'm living in my life today? Well, that's a really great question. Let's talk about that. You know, in our world, we have a saying that goes something like this: the odds are stacked against us. Ever heard that phrase before? The odds are stacked against us. As I was, I don't know if some of y'all are into golf. I like watching golf on Sunday afternoons. It's a good thing to fall asleep to, get a little nap. But then you wait back up, and then a couple holes later, and they're still going, right? Well, a couple of weeks ago, Jordan Spieth, uh won the British Open, and he won it in unbelievable fashion. It was a come from behind win. He been, had been, had the lead, held the lead, had the lead, held the lead, and then some things fell apart for him, and you thought, okay, here comes the Masters 2015 again, right? And then next thing you know, Uh, the guy ends up getting an eagle, followed by birdie, 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 and he ends up winning the British Open. And it was just astounding to sit there and watch this unfold. It was something where the odds were totally stacked against him. There's no way he's going to be able to come from behind. And sure enough, he did. As I was thinking about this, you know, Hebrew Christian Church paid off $230,000 debt in the middle of the height of the recession back in 2009, 2010. $230,000, which was like our whole budget for the whole year. And yet, it happened, friends. And see, the reason why it happens is because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26, Matthew, cha- or Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14, he said, With man, all this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Wouldn't you agree that this turn of events, the apostle Paul, a man who was so locked in on Judaism and following the laws and doing everything that Judaism had taught him to do, making a total 180 turn to become a follower of Jesus Christ. A guy who was headlong, starting churches, evangelizing, telling people that Jesus was risen from the dead and that he was the way to heaven. I mean, who would have ever thought that that was possible or that that could possibly happen? Well, it happened, friends, and I love what God's word reminds us of today. It reminds us that nobody, nobody is beyond the reach of God. Nobody, Amen? Many of us here have loved ones. We have moms, dads, children. We have cousins, aunts, uncles, close friends of ours, neighbors, that we look at and we say, you know what? If I was a gambling man, I, would put, I wouldn't want to put money on the fact that that person would make that kind of a 180 turn in their life, that that person would go from being somebody who was headlong, heading in the direction, harden their heart to the gospel, to somebody who's going to be out there uh, sharing the good news of Jesus with other people. I, I just... We all have people like that in our lives, that we say, There's, I just don't see that ever really happening. Friends at work, friends of ours at school, people in our neighborhood, people with that we say, the odds are totally against that kind of a change, that kind of a 180 ever happening. But again, the Lord Jesus reminds us, Matthew 19, verse 26, I had it right the first time. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You know, years ago, I was in Houston, Texas, and I visited a church down there called St. John's United Methodist Church, and the pastor of that, actually, that's the church that Beyonce grew up in. <laughs> uh, yeah, did her a lot of good, right? But in any case, her family still goes to church there, and, um, and, uh, and you can imagine the music was like off the charts, you know, Beyonce, we've got to keep, keep the, uh, anyhow. But uh, so, so uh, it was really good, as a rocking church and everything, you can imagine, and the pastor of that church was a guy named Rudy Rasmus. And here's a picture of Pastor Rudy. Now you really can't see the goatee. Do you all see the goatee? He's got like some braids going on there. And uh, he talked about that for a little bit. But anyhow, he did a great job with his sermon that day. And um, he didn't look like what you'd expect a pastor to look like. Um, he didn't talk like what you'd expect a pastor to talk like. But in any case, uh, he was a really unique and inspirational kind of a guy. And, um, and after the service, I had an opportunity to sit down with him and for him to share some of his story of how he came to faith in Christ. Rudy told about um, how in his 20s, in his early 20s, he and his dad opened up a motel in downtown Houston that didn't have overnight guests. They just had men coming in and out, and you can imagine what all that was for. He went to work every day, he said, with a gun on his hip. He got into trafficking drugs. And into all of that, he said he had paid off many of the local police department in Houston. He said he had men under his employ that if he told them to kill, they would kill without hesitation. This is a hard dude. Um, and he and his dad were a notorious pair in the city of Houston. Now, a series of crises began to unfold in Rudy's life, and he was introduced to the Lord Jesus. And then the next thing you know, he would given his life to Christ, and he began to turn his life around. Today, Rudy is a very different man. And he walks a very different path. He's pastor of St. John's United Methodist Church, a church of about 9,000 people, 30% of whom are homeless or formerly homeless. They have a massive outreach both locally and globally to end uh, uh, poverty and end uh, hunger. Um, Friends, the point of all this is, is that nobody, nobody is beyond the reach of God. You say, Gordon, I hear what you're saying. I mean, that's wonderful, but how? How does this happen? How can I be a part of this happening? How do you reach somebody like that? Because I'm trying to reach people, and it's just hard to break through that hard outer exterior. Uh, How do I do this? That's a really great question, and the scripture answers the question for us. Let's go back to Acts chapter 26 and verse 14. Acts chapter 26 and verse 14. Remember, Paul said there, He was talking to King Agrippa, sharing his testimony, uh, sharing how he came to Christ, and he says, I heard a voice saying to me when I was on the road to Damascus, that blinding light, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Paul says something positively intriguing. He says, isn't it hard for you, this is the Lord Jesus speaking to him, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? You say, Gordon, what in the world is that? What is a goad? What are we talking about here? Well, back in Bible times, a sheep herder or a herder of any kind, cattle, goats, whatever it was, would have had a staff, and on the bottom of that staff would have been a pointy end. And they called that the goad. And they would use this uh, goad if an animal began to head off in a direction it wasn't supposed to go, the herder didn't want it to go, they would begin to stick that animal in the side or in the rear and to try and steer the animal back in the right, more safe direction. And they would take it and jab that animal in the backside. Uh, Now, the animal didn't like it, as you can imagine, getting stuck in the side, getting stuck in the rear. And so they would begin to kick back against that prod that was sticking them, that goad, until the animal either gave up, got tired of kicking, or just decided, okay, well, maybe I need to go in the other direction. Now, listen to what God is saying here to Paul on the road to Damascus. I have been sticking you, buddy. I have, aren't you tired of me prodding you, pal? Right? I've been and and I've been sticking you and kicking and you've been kicking and you've been kicking, Paul. Aren't you tired yet of all this prodding? Aren't you tired yet of all this sticking that I've been doing you to try and get you to turn around and head in a right direction? Now the question for us is, what are these goads? that the Lord Jesus has been using to move the Apostle Paul from the direction that he was heading, full tilt, full tilt, going away from God, to full tilt, going in another direction. Um, and these goads, friends, are the same that God still uses today. Well, the first one is, two of them here and then I'll be done. The first goad that pokes and prods us in the right direction for those that have not given themselves to Christ is the goad of an authentic Christian life, an authentic Christian life. You know, we already saw this in Acts chapter 7 with the story of Stephen, the martyr, who Paul had been standing there while they were throwing the stones at Stephen. And Paul's probably thinking to himself, man, what will it take for you to let go, for you to blaspheme, for you to recant? And yet Stephen never did. Stephen never recanted. Paul stood there and arrested and threw in jail thousands of Christians, and yet none of them would recant. Paul watched Christians undergo torture. He watched Christians lose everything that they had, and yet they would not recant. And all of these authentic Christian lives, apparently, according to the Lord Jesus, became a goad that whittled away at the heart of the Apostle Paul. They whittled away at his conscience. They whittled away at the hardness of his heart toward the gospel. And they began opening up his heart to receive the truth. Listen, friends, I heard one pastor say it this way. This is a mouthful. Let me see if I can say it right. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks more than your talk talks. <laughs> Somebody say that for me real fast five times, right? So let me say it for you one more time, see so if you catch it. Your walk talks. And your talk talks, but your walk talks more than your talk talks. And so that's, what this, that's what's going on here with this authentic Christian life. You say, well, Gordon, besides, uh, you know, in the face of torture and a firing squad, not recanting, I mean, is there some day-to-day stuff that I can do that looks like an authentic Christian life that people who are watching my life, might God might use as a goad to push them in the right direction? Well, sure. Living an authentic Christian life can mean keeping your word even when you don't want to. It can mean telling the truth about a sales deal even when that might potentially ruin the sales deal. It may mean showing forgiveness to someone you've been withholding it from. It may mean hundreds of things that reflect biblical obedience, hundreds of ways that we obey God even though it may hurt, even though we may not want to, even though it may be easier not to, Friends, never underestimate the power of an authentic Christian life to reach the heart of a hardened person. The second goad, goad number two is the goad of prevailing prayer. The goad of prevailing prayer. You know, after Paul had his encounter with Jesus, the Lord Jesus sends a man in the story in the scriptures there in Acts, a man by the name of Ananias, to go and pray with Paul and help Paul. The Lord tells Ananias, hey, look, Paul's over here, and he's distraught, and he's realizing that he's made a mess of things and his life and everything, and he's been working toward against God instead of for God, and he's just a mess. And so I want you to go and pray with him, Ananias. And so here's Ananias' response. This is interesting. Acts chapter 9 and verse 13. He says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this guy, Paul, and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Remember, Ananias is up in Damascus, up north of Jerusalem, where Paul's come to. Verse 14. He has come here, Paul has come here, with authority of the chief priests to arrest us who call on your name. Now, the question is, How did Ananias know that Paul had come and that Paul had come to Damascus with the authority of the chief priest to arrest Christians? Well, the answer is, I don't know. I have no idea how Ananias knew this. Maybe they had some underground network of information, but somehow or another, Ananias knew. The point is that he knew that the pain train called Rabbi Saul was on his way to Damascus, and he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. He knew that that was coming. He knew the harm that Paul had done over the course of Paul's career. Friends, don't you suppose, don't you suppose that those Christians in Damascus had been praying because they knew Paul was coming? Don't you think they had been on their knees night and day? Don't you suppose they had been holding prayer vigils deep into the night praying Uh, that God would somehow protect them and would sort this thing out? Don't you suppose that hundreds of Christians, maybe thousands of Christians in Damascus, might have been praying a prayer saying, Lord, as unlikely as it may sound, soften the heart of this man. Lead him to a relationship with you. God, we know you can reach his heart. Don't you suppose they were praying for him like that? Friends, you can do things in people's hearts through prayer that you can never do with words. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying or suggesting that we don't open our mouths and share the truth of the gospel with people because we have to do that. People need the information to be able to act on the information to be able to respond to this message about Jesus. However, there are things that we can accomplish in prayer that our words never can. The second thing that, and so let me kind of just wrap up here. We all have people in our lives that we can consider unlikely candidates for ever coming to faith in Christ. People like the Apostle Paul. People like Pastor Rudy. And what has the Word of God taught us today about these people? Well, number one, the Word of God has taught us that nobody, nobody is beyond the reach of God. And secondly, the Word of God has taught us that there are ways that we can participate with the Holy Spirit as a goad, as a prod, to move people in a right direction. And those are, number one, living an authentic Christian life in front of these people. And goad number two is by praying for them, becoming a prayer warrior on behalf of that person. And that's goad number two that God uses to reach unlikely people for Christ. Who are the unlikely people? To come to Christ in your life. Hear the word of God saying, here's how you participate with me in reaching them for Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Lord, we thank you for reminding us today that there is hope. There is hope. That there are people in our lives, Lord, we know are unlikely to come to faith, at least by the, from the outside looking in. But as you reminded us today, Lord, with man, this is impossible. But with you, O God, all things are possible. Lord, we submit those people in our lives to you. We lay their names at the foot of your cross. We plead with you now in prayer that you would reach their heart, that you would soften their heart to the gospel. If it needs to be a blinding light from heaven, Lord, let it be a blinding light from heaven. It needs to be crisis coming into the life, Lord. Let the crisis fall. The goal being that they give their lives to you, whatever it takes. Lord, use us as one of those prods that softens their hearts and turns them in a way that's safe, that turns them towards you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.